We have trouble. Trouble. I call it sport. We all feel better. We all feel better in the dark. In the dark. <laughs> kick your ass! And see, since he's my friend, I'll have to kick your ass too. You know? First you give us this stupid Poughkeepsie yeah, tape I mean, you know, bullshit ripoff. Because he's my boy. Yeah. 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 Check it. Let me tell you about these two dudes from Brooklyn. You won't view movies the same way again. Every two weeks you get something new and hate it or love it, they break it down for you. Tom DJ and Derek Ferguson been writing for years, got respect from the peers. Watch these movies for all benefit. Don't watch it Halloween, love Tom rather spit. How about a couple musicals or maybe Dennis Quaid? Or Tom's on a rant, directors be afraid. Episodes classic, don't get it twisted. And from the start, these two have been gifted. Tom loves Kristen and Derek loves Pam. Tom hates heroes and Derek can't stand. Remakes of movies that don't need remade. Watch out studios, they won't be played. So give it up for T and give it up for D. Coolest guys from Brooklyn, this side of Jay-Z. My name's B hyphen and it's time to stop. Cause we all feel better, better, better in the dark. Voila! In view, a humble vaudevillian veteran cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. This visage, no mere veneer of vanity, is a vestige of the Fox Populi, now vacant and vanished. However, this valorous visitation of a bygone vexation stands vivified and has vowed to vanquish these venal and vidal and vermin, vanguarding vice and vouchsafing the violently vicious and voracious violation of militia. The only verdict is vengeance. Folks, here we are with what has become a tradition with me and Tom. Mm-hmm. We've done our 50th episode, episode which hopefully you've listened to it by now. A bunch of you have already enjoyed it, so it went up today. Right. Actually, this is our anniversary episode. We did our very first Better in the Dark episode on Super Bowl Sunday. And this has become a tradition right. with me and Tom. What we do is that he comes over to my house and we record a couple of episodes of Better in the Dark and we watch the Super Bowl game. Know. Because this is our actual anniversary. Right. And we've been doing this for three years now. This is and the beginning Tom, of the third. We're shaking hands now, folks. Right. Tom, thank you very much. I could never for, I've said this before. Tom, thank you. No, thank you because I couldn't have done this without you. I've said this before. There was no way I could do a show as informative as Better in the Dark without you. I've had nothing but fun but mm. doing this with you for three years. I never actually thought that it would get to this point right. where we're at now. It started out as just some guy saying, oh, I'm going to put together a radio station. Could you put some content together? And it's become this. Actually, that's how this started, folks. Better in the Dark started out was that it was a friend of Tom's mm-hmm. who had his own little internet radio station. radio station. Sci-fi fan radio. And he asked us for some content. In fact, if you go to the site that we're archiving our older episodes on, which is bitd.lipson.com, and listen to the first five or six episodes, we actually have an indicia that specifically mentions sci-fi fan yeah, radio. Yeah, that's how we started out. When that didn't work out, me and Tom just got together, and we came over to my house, and we sat down, and we said, well, yeah. this is going pretty good. Well, we Why don't out. we keep it going on and on? We so always that, talked about it. archiving it as a podcast for other people. So well, why don't we just formalize and make it fully podcasterific? Yeah. And a lot of people always ask me, well, how do you and Tom ever started out doing this? We started out doing this kind of by accident, right. and then... 
we found out that we like doing it, mm-hmm. so we just kept it going. We've always been a good collaborative fit. Even exactly, back exactly. The Marvel 2000 days, which we exactly. try not to remember much. What you're listening to when you get this is phone conversation me and Tom have anyway, because right. we would get on the phone and talk about two or three hours about movies we enjoyed. We just decided to put it in podcast form, right. and it's grown into such a thing. I really can't thank people enough like Kellen Conley right. and Dino Pollard and... All James and James John and Drew. John Drushi and, and you know all the Joffrey Street guys oh. and Michael Sims and his common law Whoopi. Yeah, all your and let's not forget the first family of better in the, the dark. First the first family, the Reddicks. We can't thank y'all guys enough. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys. Right. And you guys are the ones that have shown us so much support and love and we really appreciate it. So now that we have stopped crying on each other's okay. shoulders, we're going to get to what the meat of this episode, because we got to get up and watch the Super Bowl. Although, as we we'll learned <laughs> talk about one film, maybe we should be saying the potatoes. Duh. Because we're recording this on Super Bowl, and we was we were supposed to record We were others. supposed to be recording others, but... <laughs> but Audacity decided to be a punk day. So, Apparently, uh, Audacity is a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. <laughs> So what we're going to do is we're going to get right to the meat and potatoes of this episode. If you see the day that this is going to be released, which is March the 1st, you'll know that there's a big, 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 big movie coming out this Friday. Right. Which is, of course, Watchmen. So what Derek and I decided to do is go back and look at three examples of... Films that took, in one way or another, Alan Moore has inspiration, mm-hmm. and see how they handle Alan Moore stuff, and then use it as a launch pad to talk about the Watchmen. Right. The first one we're going to talk about is the earliest one, The Return, Return of, of the, the Swamp Thing, which, as we know, was Alan Moore's first big success here in the United States. Right. DC said, we like your work on this Warriors book. You want to do Batman? And Alan Moore said, no, I don't want to do Batman. Give me your worst selling title. Now do the English accent. When you try to do it, since I've actually met the man, let's say, I said to myself, I don't want to do Batman because if Batman fails, I'm a miserable failure. <laughs> so why don't you give me your worst selling book and I'll do that one. And the one that Jeanette Kong gave him was Swamp Thing. So you've actually met Alan Moore. I met Alan Moore. How is that? That's He's what people want to hear. With uh, prodigious amounts of hair, even back then, it was very early on in his career. Mm-hmm. They were promoting the first trade paperback collection of the Saga of the Swamp Thing, which is what it was called back then. Mm-hmm. One of the things we discussed in this interview was this new John Constantine Hellblazer series that Jamie Delano was going to be starting. They invited myself and a friend to go and interview him. And we sat there for 40 minutes and talked to him about Swamp Thing and talked a bit about other things. He was an interesting gentleman. He's not somebody that I forged a longer friendship with like I did with Warren Ellis. I exchanged phone conversations with him for about two, three, four years after our interview, but still he was a nice enough man. Okay. Briefly give you a little bit of a setting. Swamp Thing was not doing well. He took it over with his second issue, a story called The Anatomy Lesson. He totally changed the status quo of the character. Oh, he reinvented it, yeah. He was there for about five or six years. Well, he did the same thing Jack Kirby did, and Jim Steranko did at Marvel. Mm -hmm. They said, give me the lowest seller book you got, because they figured I'll either make it a success or... Or Jim Starlin, yeah, where Jim Starlin would say, okay, I don't want to do Iron Man, give me uh, Warlock. Warlock, yeah, exactly. You had these guys... Well, give me the lowest selling book you right. got, and let me do it this way. If it fails, it's no big deal. And if it becomes a big success, I make out like the a band. The of this, though, was that under Alan Moore and originally Steve Bissett, later on it was Rick Beach, under these three people, 
Swamp Thing became very popular among comic book fans. Oh, yeah, yeah. And oh, got yeah. a modicum of attention in the mainstream media, which allowed a low-rent, fly-by-night movie company called Lightyear well, Entertainment. Well, it was even... I remember reading Newsweek. Remember the controversial mm-hmm. Jesus Christ storyline? Yes. That was in even Newsweek magazine. They had which a story was about that. part of the reason why Alan Moore, to this day, will not talk to anybody from D.C. To the point where he was doing a lot of work for Wildstorm back in the late 90s. And Wildstorm was bought by D.C. He had it put in his contract with Wildstorm that he would have no contact with Jeanette Kahn, the mm-hmm. vice president. All his checks would come from Jim Lee. Jim Lee would go and get the money, write out the check, <laughs> and give it to Alan Moore. Okay. Lightyear Entertainment managed to use the fact that the Swamp Thing had become popular again, thanks to Alan Moore, to bankroll a sequel to the Wes Craven film, Swamp Thing, mm-hmm. which starred Dick Durock as the titular Swamp Thing, and Adrian Barbeau has a pair of tits. Adrian Barbo isn't just a Okay, I'm just saying. That was her big thing. She's a gorgeous pair of tits. If you remember, that was one of the big selling points of that first film. It was the first time Adrian Barbo was going to have a topless scene. Any movie has got Adrian Barbo run through a swamp in a wet wife beater, <laughs> I'm paying my money to see that. <laughs> so anyway, so in 1988, Lightyear Entertainment... But we should mention, yeah, okay. Dick Durock. This guy was a stuntman for years. Right. He really did an excellent job portraying and swamp, the, a, a, swamp thing and getting the humanity of the yeah. character using his eyes and his voice right. which pretty much he was limited to using with all the makeup mm-hmm. he had to wear he portrayed swamp thing not only through the first film and this film but also in the tv series right. that universal decided was viable showed originally through usa and then became syndicated yeah. which went back and mined a lot and the first season the first season was kind of goofy but the second and third seasons, they mined a lot of Alan Moore stuff. Because since it was the same company right. that was producing the TV series, they had the right, right. to use well, Alan used, Moore stuff. Yeah, well, they used the same set, the set that was built at Universal Studios back when Universal Studios first opened its Florida studios. Yeah. Which then became the Universal Amusement Park. They used the same suit and a lot of the same personnel that was used in making this film. Let's get to the film itself. It's 1989 it came out. On uh, May the 12th. Okay. Directed by Jim Wynorski, who is one of a sort of mini boom of directors on the cheap. Him, Fred Olin Ray, he's not very good. But they specialized in making these films for maybe a couple thousand dollars. Then released in like very limited theatricals. Guys like him, they like him because they bring the movie in under budget Mm -hmm. and on time. I don't knock them. They gotta eat too. Fred Olin Ray, who I have met, is a really great guy. Even though I'm not a big fan of his work, he has no pretensions about what he's doing. That's why I like these guys, because they don't think that they Steven Spielberg or Orson Welles. They know what they do. They bring in a movie on budget, on time. I get to make my living making movies, so they're not the greatest movies in the world. I respect guys like that, because you don't have any illusions about what you are or what you do. Right. You know you're not going to make anything that's going to be any great art, but studios hire you because you bring in a movie on budget, on time, and on time. Return of the Swamp Thing, 1989. Louis Jordan actually got top billing. Him and Heather Locklear got top billing over Dick Dorock. Heather Locklear, who I believe is probably the only movie actress that was on two different series at two different networks at yep. the same time. She was on Dallas. Dallas, and she was on T.J. Hooker. T.J. Hooker, yeah. Although, of course, thing. most people remember Heather Locklear nowadays for saving a dying soap opera. In the 90s, called Melrose Place. I was a placemat. 
during mm-hmm. the 90s. And I'm not ashamed to admit it. Just like you were saying with Fred Ray, Heather Locklear, I admire her. She doesn't think that she's Elizabeth Taylor. No. She realizes the niche that she has mm-hmm. and she works in that. She's a TV actress. She may get a role in right. a big budget movie here or there, but she realizes what her niche is and she doesn't like try to make herself out to be exactly. more than what she is. So let's get to the plot of this. Go right ahead, my brother. If you remember from the original Swamp Thing, Dr. Anton Arcane, who is played by Louis Jordan, this is during the twilight of his life, so he's not looking well in this movie, was turned into a sword-wielding pigman. He's no longer a sword-wielding pigman when this film opens, but he's having some problems keeping his genetic material together. But he discovered that his now late wife had something in her blood that he could use in a serum that could keep him together and make him younger but his wife dies and he's now sitting in his swamp and it's supposed to be louisiana but it's actually shot in savannah georgia making in this basement with his two pet scientists dr lana zurel played by sarah douglas who is in love with him Mm -hmm. and my favorite dr rochelle who's played by get this name ace mask (laughs) and that's his actual name actual name ace Mask. now granted ace mask who sounds like he should be an action hero has no chin, is balding, and is running around all the time with an asthma rebreather. Sounds like a G.I. Joe character. Yeah, but wasn't, wasn't there like a show called Mask? And, yeah, yeah, Mask, okay. yeah. Maybe that's where he came from. Meanwhile, his stepdaughter, played by Heather Locklear, Abigail Arcane, okay. is a little bit confused about the mysterious circumstances of her mother's death. So after a supposed ha-ha-ha comedy bit, where among other things, she makes a reference to T.J. Hooker, and bemoans, why can't men be more like plants? Mm-hmm. She goes and to Savannah, Louisiana, and goes to visit Daddy Dearest. Meanwhile, these various experiments he's been doing on the genetic manipulation has created this series of weird-ass mutants. I guess these are his unmen, most mm-hmm. like in the comics. One of which, a really cool-looking leechman, is like running around the swamp eating people. But like Swamp Thing comes in and beats them up, and that's that, right? Swamp Thing and Heather Locklear meet. There's love in the air. Arcane kidnaps Lock because she realizes that Locklear's blood has the same X quality that her mother had. So he figures, okay, I'm going to milk her for everything she's worth, and then I'm going to be young again. Swamp Thing ain't having that. Ace Mask gets turned into a fleshy-headed mutant. There's a whole lot of bullcrap happens in this film. Mm. But it's what it is, which is a cheap Jack action movie with a guy in a suit. But getting back to the theme of this yes. episode, where are the Alan Moore influences? The Alan Moore influence is primarily in the way they handle the Abigail Kane character. Because, yes, there is a romantic relationship between the two. And there is actually a scene where she feeds off of a growth that he generates. Mm-hmm. And they have a, you know, the sex Psychosexual. Psycho, psychedelic sex scene. Which is noteworthy for the fact that it's the only time in this movie where Dick Durock appears as himself. Oh, okay. Because, if I remember correctly, the Dr. Holland character is played by a different actor... Mm-hmm. In the original West Craven. Yeah, yeah, in the original one, yeah. And he becomes Dick Durock once he becomes Swamp Thing. Um, Wasn't it actually Ray Wise, I believe? It may very well have been Ray Wise. It was Ray Wise right. who played think... Dr. Holland mm-hmm. in the original one. And then when he became Swamp yeah. Thing, then it was Dick Durock. So there's also a scene where Swamp Thing has to bring Abby back from death. She does with little, back in 1989 style special effects. But the thing of the matter is, it's very, very broad. It is very camp. For every moment where they're trying to actually get the Alan Moore Swamp Thing legends right, there's a scene like uh, the one between Joe Segal's gun, who's the head mercenary that works for Arcane, mm-hmm. and his right-hand girl, Ms. Poinsettia, who is played by Bonique Gabriel, comically comparing scars on their body before having sex. 
The worst part of it is... I don't remember that part about the movie. (laughs) The worst part of it... But it's been a while since I've seen it. ...is the comedy relief, who is played by two children. Ron Rico Lee has Omar, and I'm assuming that Timothy Birch is the character who plays Clyde. Mm-hmm. They're these two obnoxious kids because they heard that a paper is like offering a thousand dollars for a picture of Swamp Thing. And they're running around. They're trying to trick Swamp Thing into thinking they get a picture taken with mm-hmm. them. These guys love these two characters enough that they made them the focus of an actual, honest to God, PSA for Greenpeace. To wit, check this out. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm sitting here and Tom brought it up on his laptop. It's a commercial with Swamp Thing. Right. And there were two I, of them. I, I considerably doubt that Alan Moore had that in mind no. when he was writing the character. Especially, I don't think Alan Moore ever wrote the line, in fact, kids, I'm Swamp. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I stand corrected. Daniel Emery Taylor was the other actor named. He's really obnoxious. He's the one with the really obnoxious voice. The little, fat, red-headed kid. That was Return to Swamp Thing. It was just a little nugget of a film. It's very short. Very quick. There's some people who would say the only good part about it is the credits where they play Born on the Bayou, just like they did in the thing with the old Steve Bissett covers. Yeah. By. It's not bad. It's not good, but it's not bad. Okay. Well, I'll take a word for it. It's been a long time since I've seen Matter of fact, I didn't even remember seeing it until you mentioned Heather Locklear. And then I said, oh, yeah, I have seen that movie. And Louis Jordan. The one thing I do want to say about it, I mean, Jordan was obviously struggling. He was very sick at the time. But I give him credit. For, there's some lines that he has which... You can see some of the old Louis Jordan coming through. Yeah, yeah. There's one particular exchange where Heather Locklear goes, Have you sold your soul to the devil? To which Jordan, he kind of like sits there in his chair and kind of takes his head to the one side and goes, considers the statement and goes, Well, let's just say he has a lease with an option to buy. Mm. And that is just so pure Louis Jordan. And I would just like to mention that Louis Jordan, he also played Dracula in a memorable oh, BBC yeah. production of Dracula and... If you're a James Bond fan, he played the bad guy in Octopussy. Which we're going to talk about in the next Bond episode. He played a memorable bad guy. That was it for Alan Moore in terms of superheroic comics in the movies. There was, of course, From Hell, but we're not going to cover From Hell in this episode because we've got another episode coming up where we're going to talk about Ripperology and how it's been depicted in the movies. And also, to be honest, neither me or Tom have seen it from hell. I will be honest about it. Which kind of really surprises me because as much as both me and you are Johnny Depp fans, I've never seen from hell. To be fair, it also has Heather Graham. She had the scary eyes. Well, you go on with that. I know. Okay. That doesn't bother me. For some reason, when it was in the theater, it just came and yeah, went real quick. Yeah. Quickly. Next film we're going to talk about. It didn't come out to 2003, and this is based on one of his like biggest hits. In fact, probably his biggest, most critically acclaimed 
comic, with the exception of Watchmen, which we're going to get to at the very end of this episode, mm-hmm. namely The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which was a set of two miniseries that he did with British artist Kevin O'Neill. The concept is wonderfully elegant. It's one of those things that we both go, why didn't I think of that when we first met Exactly. It? Being a writer, I say, well, why did I think of that? The idea behind The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is that during history... A lot of our fictional characters have gotten together and formed a super team yeah. to confront some unimaginable evil that neither one of them could face alone, but we get together and we'll beat it together. And in this movie, we have Alan Quartermain. Right. Alan H- Quartermain is summoned from his spot in Africa. Right. Who was created by a writer, Haggard, who was his great white hunter. He's played by Sean Connery. He doesn't want to do it at first until, of course... The villain of the piece shows up and kills his friend and his, the servants in the club he's in and blows up the club. That's when he decides. And that's when he decides, yeah. I'll just go ahead and right. I don't have any place to hang out here now. Yeah. And he meets the other members of the present League right. of Extraordinary Gentlemen that includes the Invisible Man. Who is not the Invisible Man from the novel but a thief by the name of Skinner who happened to come across the formula, drank it, because, of course, he's pig ignorant, I guess, mm-hmm. and is looking for a way to become visible again. We have Captain Nemo. I know that you and I both agree this guy was a good job. Oh, yeah. The actor's name is Nasiruddin Shah. And this is the first time I believe that Captain Nemo has been played as exactly a as a. Yeah, yeah, because that's what he was in the original mm-hmm. novel by Jude Verne. This is how he's played in this one. Right. And he has this really incredibly unique martial arts style. Mm-hmm. Kind of based on like the dervish styles. The dervishes supposedly guarded the gates of Constantinople mm-hmm. uh, to protect it against the crusaders during the crusades. Mm-hmm. And supposedly that's this martial arts style is supposed to be. Right. The uses. only problem I have with this portrayal of Captain Nemo, I would have preferred a Nautilus more like the one from yeah. the Disney movie. Mm-hmm. This was like an aircraft yeah. carrier. How did he ever build something like mm-hmm. this without somebody? Without somebody noticing, because the damn thing is like yeah. a mile long, it's, and a- it's like 500 yards high. It doesn't make any sense. It's an aircraft carrier. Right. We also have Nina Harker, Nina Harker from Dracula, mm-hmm. who, this is your particular beef, and I will turn it over to you. Played by Peter Wilson. Peter Wilson. Of La Femme Nikita. I'm not sure if like, La Femme Nikita had just... Ended it was obviously, well, let's throw her up because she's popular with the geeks. In the graphic novel, Mina Harker was bit by Dracula but wasn't turned. Into a and man. so he, she just has a lot of knowledge. A father-daughter relationship develops between her and Quartermain. Which in this movie is supplanted by the relationship by the between of Alan Quartermain and Tom Sawyer. Who was a new who, wa- who wasn't in the original mm-hmm. graphic novel, but they put him in this movie right. because... Because apparently the producers felt that American audiences weren't going to care about a bunch of Brits. Mm-hmm. So they insisted on an American character being in the team. This is part of the big complaint I have, which we'll get to once we finish talking about the plot. So Mina Harker character in the movie is a full-blown vampire. They are then sent to gather up two more members of the right. team. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Dr. Jekyll, who is uh, hanging out in the Rue Morgue in Paris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, apparently he was the ape in the... the he was the monster in the Rue Morgue. By, by yeah. Alan Poe. And Dorian Gray, played by Stuart Townsend. Who in this movie is apparently immortal because if you've read a uh, picture of Dorian Gray, and if you haven't, yeah. turn off this podcast and go read the story. But he's immortal because his picture 
to ages, but right. he doesn't. In this movie, he's apparently immune to any kill because he gets shot right. in this movie. We see the bullet holes heal up. Mm-hmm. They've amped up his They've immortal. also played around with, because apparently, I guess, the same people that felt that American audiences wouldn't sympathize with a Brit felt that American audiences wouldn't sympathize with a homosexual. Mm-hmm. Because he's very obviously homosexual in the oh, novel. yeah. But in this one, he not only is he not homosexual, he has had a prior relationship with Mina with, Harker. With Mina Harker, yeah. And they are sent by M to stop a character called the Phantom. Mm-hmm. Because there's been a rash of, for, for 1899, high-tech robberies. Mm-hmm. And they've learned through intelligence that this Phantom is intending to trigger a worldwide war, then sell all these high-tech devices mm-hmm. he created to the highest bidder. They are sent off to stop him. Because as we find out, when Alan Quartermain goes to the headquarters of mm-hmm. the British Secret Service, right. we find out that there have been leagues of extraordinary right. gentlemen all throughout history mm-hmm. that have been assembled to fight some big, huge right. evil. This isn't something that just happened just right, right now. And I actually think it's kind of neat that we have Sean Connery taking right. orders again from M, who in the original graphic novel... Was Sherlock Holmes' brother, Mycroft Holmes, Mycroft Holmes, who started the British Secret Service, which is why every head of the British Secret Service has been known right. by the designation mm-hmm. of M. So they go off on an adventure to stop the Phantom that leads them to Venice and to Siberia and, and to Paris and all these other places. Yeah, yeah, it ends up in a big battle in a factory up in the North Pole. There's a comment some point about one of the characters going like. Uh, what do you want me to do, live with the penguins? It's like, actually, penguins are the South Pole. Well, that's Skinner, actually. Yeah, that's Skinner, Skinner, yeah. Because yeah. he keeps making comments because, since he's invisible, he can't wear clothes right. because if he wears the clothes, of course, the clothes are it. Right. It's just him that's invisible. Mm-hmm. So he's up there, he said, oh, you want me to freeze off my willy with the penguins? You like this a lot more than I do. I like it because, as you and I have discussed, right. before we get together to record these episodes... We usually get together, we have a phone conversation, right. and we discuss what we're going to do. And Tom, when I mentioned how much I said well, that I like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, there was a solace of about a minute. <laughs> but I like the movie for what it is, not what it isn't. Is it the graphic novel? No, it's not. But the concept of getting a bunch of fictional characters together right. as a super team, you can't beat that. And this guy Sean Connery, who even at his age, can beat the ass off of guys Half his age in a movie and look convincing doing it. It's a good time waster. It is. See, you're saying that I am criticizing it for what it's not. I'm criticizing it for what it is. It is so obvious that this film is nothing more than a franchise grab. All of these decisions that were made. Nina Harker, it's not good enough that she's like psychic detective now. She has to be a vampire. Mm-hmm. One of the major changes they make in the plot is that there's a character that betrays the League. In the graphic novel. Because that character is one of the major characters with superpowers, they changed the person who betrays the League in the movie. Someone who has a much less visually interesting power. Everything from that freaking Nautilus that you, you complained about. Oh, yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Now, granted, the reason they changed the person who becomes the ultimate villain in the first novel, it's understandable because they could not get the rights to that person. Right. The rights were still sewed up. However, adding that extra twist about the villain that they end up fighting, mm-hmm. where it turns out that he's actually betrayed the League in a certain way, is the 90s. So people have oh, yeah, that last choice yeah. where somebody in authority betrays them. That's all this is. It's so 
bald-faced throughout this film. And understand me, Tom, I'm not disputing what you say. What you say is valid, Mm -hmm. and I agree with it, but it does not impede my enjoyment of the movie. Okay. This is what the movie is about. The movie is product. There are characters here who were added that could be excised whole. Namely, I'm thinking of Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer. The major reason Tom Sawyer is there is to fulfill the function that Mina Harker fulfills in the the graphic novel. I agree with you. You argue what it's not, but I'm looking at it for what it is. But what it is... It's product. The movie movie was not designed to be nothing more than a Saturday afternoon time waster. And if you look at it at that basis, that's how I enjoy the movie. I'm not one of these people who believes that every comic book adaptation has to be exactingly like source material. Right after we finish talking about this, the next one we're talking about takes very, very different paths from the source material, Mm. and yet it's a great film. This one takes so many different deviations that it's no longer in the spirit of the original. But it takes the cool concept of bringing together a bunch of fictional characters Mm -hmm. and having them team up, and then it goes off in its own direction. When I saw it, I was like, I said, well, it's not this, it's not that. But then I looked at it for what it was. Even to that silly last scene at one of these characters' funerals, where we find out that the character is not dead, it's obvious that all they're doing is we're setting it up Yeah, we're setting it up for a franchise, yes. Is going to be our cash cow, and it didn't turn out like that. No, it because did. Because apparently, a lot of people didn't go see it. But, and even down to the way they were marketing this. This came out in two thousand and two, when you couldn't just call something Halloween twenty years later. You had to call it H two O. This wasn't League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It was LXG. LXG. There's no life in this film other than buy our stuff. This is when we got to agree to disagree. Okay. I have League of Extraordinary right. Gentlemen in my home video library. I drag it out every once in a while. I enjoy it for what it is. Right. No, it's not the graphic novel. Does it got a lot of things wrong? Yes, it does. The whole Venice sequence makes no sense to me. I will not sit up here and defend that. There's no way you're going to get a submarine the size of an aircraft carrier. And then the whole scene where the buildings are collapsing and it's exploding. Wait a minute. You mean you got to get the car to a head and blow right. up another building to stop the rest of the building? Yeah. That makes no sense to me. But I watched League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and I enjoy it for what it is. It's a time waster. That's all it is. Right. A Saturday afternoon time waster. There is one thing I want to give credit for, which okay. is Kevin O'Neill did the original graphic novel, draws like no other person. And I like the fact that the special effects men gave us a Mr. Hyde that looked like a Kevin O'Neill drawing. Okay. I really liked that. Of course, what I didn't like was the fact that since there's a Mr. Hyde, there has to be a Super Hyde. The climax, so they could fight the regular high. Yeah, when the guy drank all yeah. the uh, potions and he turned to super high. You know right. Said, yeah. That I could do without. I could do without the whole thing with Dorian Gray and Mina Harker having this prior relationship, which is there just so she can make a really well. Yeah, because you know, they're fi- they're I mean, fighting. you know, they amped up Dorian Gray. They made him immortal. There's certain things, but. There are people that I know, including my wife, Patricia. Mm-hmm. We went to see the movie together. A lot of people wasn't familiar with the graphic novel. They thought mm-hmm. it was a pretty good concept, and they enjoyed right. it. I think there's only people like me and you that have read the graphic novel and said, well, it could have been so much more right. than have this opinion that it could have been like this mm-hmm. instead of this. And folks... I'm raising my hand up to the level of my head, and then I'm raising it down to the level of my neck. I'm not going to disagree with the flaws you have with it. I'm not. I still enjoy the movie for what okay. it is. And I think as a credible representation of the initial concept, 
Alan Moore had with all these fictional characters getting together. It works on that level. I'm not an idiot. I know that what Alan Moore did with the original graphic novel is he made sure every single character in that graphic novel was a character from English literature. And short of a couple of gags, like for example, the first mate of Captain Nemo is Ishmael. There yeah. are a couple of gags that part, that thing. Yeah, that's fun. a little thing that I like in that movie when the first mate he said, and he said, well, call me Ishmael. Right. And it's a little thing that go by like that. Yeah. If you don't catch it, it doesn't impede your enjoyment of the movie, but if you catch it, right. then you say, oh, wait a minute, Ishmael. Yeah. We have to disagree on this one, but I think we both agree on the, the next one, which comes out three years later in 2005, mm-hmm. V for Vendetta. This was one of these projects, much like Watchmen, which we're going to talk about Watchmen's production history after we're done with this one, mm-hmm. that went through a couple of changes. Joel Silver tried to get people to do this for a long time. It and was another one of these movies that when they read the graphic novel, they considered yeah. unfilmable. It's a graphic serial where the main character isn't the most important person in the series. Mm-hmm. In fact, he's maybe the least important person. But this is a very odd graphic novel in that it's more about the ideas than about the characters. I had resisted seeing this movie for a long time because of my prejudice against Natalie Portman, mm-hmm. who I really don't care for as an actress. But when I finally sat down and watched this movie, I was really surprised because it's not a superhero movie, which a lot of people might think, but it's a very interesting exploration of the ideas of fascism, individualism, personal responsibility for your actions. Mm -hmm. I have to cite it for the incredible performance of Hugo Weaving, Mm -hmm. who goes through the whole movie. We never see his actual face. He wears that Guy Fawkes mask through the whole movie. And he plays the role using just his voice and his body inflection. Right. And it's an incredible performance. Let's briefly go over the plot. This takes place in a f- unspecified future in Great Britain, uh, where due to a series... A fascist. A fascist, which became about because of a series of biological weapon attacks on a specific British spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, underground station, a school, and a water treatment plant. This allowed a politician... By the played name by of John Hurt. What I think is really interesting is that, of course, John Hurt played the opposite side of this in 1984. Well, in the movie 1984, right. Where he was playing the Wii character, if you will, yeah. in that film. Adam Sutler, who basically used the intimates from these attacks to put himself in office and restructure the British government so it's dictatorship. The laws are enforced by a branch of the Secret Service called the Finger. There's a lot of censorship and lockdown and control. I've always been fascinated by the British who were so against Nazism. But you find there's a lot of fiction written about a fascist going back to... You remember there was a novel during the 60s written by Norman Spinrad called Dying Dream. That's what it was, where he wrote about a fascist England. It's kind of a dirty little secret that there is fringe fascism that goes throughout English history. You have the Iron mm-hmm. Dream, and you have the movie with uh, John Hurt, 1984. Which was done in 1984, in fact. And even back during the 60s, it's The Prisoner, which uh, was at Jim McGowan. Yeah, but there was another one that the I was prisoner. thinking of called, it's called The Man in the High Castle. Which right, was, yeah. It was a BBC serial set in a alternate universe where Britain had lost the war. You have this thing where mm-hmm. Brits are fascinated by fascism, right. and what would happen if... Britain became a fascist. If Britain became a fascist, even the movie that we were talking about, remember Doomsday? We were talking about that, where Britain Mm -hmm. became a fascist state because of this virus disaster that happened. Mm -hmm. They said, bam, we're going to become fascist. Britain's had this inherent fear that if 
a national disaster happens, they're going to turn to fascism. Maybe it comes from the fact that they live on an island. You know, that might be it. I don't know, but it just seems to me like Britain has this thing that if it's ever any disaster, bam, they're going to resort to fascism. And this is the only way that they're going to solve the problems of their country. So the movie takes place over the course of a year in this fascist state. More of the story of a character by the name of Evie played by Natalie Portman. And not to cut you off, oh, sure. but for all you English fans of ours, that look, yep. please weigh in on this if you think that we're on point or right. we're not, please. Or we're just crazy Americans. Yeah. Evie leaves her house on November 5th at the beginning of this movie to go and have dinner with Dietrich. He's like a celebrity. He's kind of the equivalent of David Letterman. He has like a talk show type of thing. He's played by Stephen Fry of uh, Fry and Laurie and Fry. Yeah, yeah. So those are two men who got entirely different roots. Yeah, in their yeah, world, the yeah. World. Stephen Laurie, who for those of you who don't you know, Laurie, he yeah. plays House. You Laurie played has played you House, Laurie. and Stephen Fry has become an, a dramatic actor. And if you look at those Fry and Laurie bits, you don't realize that these people will become these serious actors. My wife is incredible because I have folks right now pointing at a bin I have yeah. in here with a bunch of DVDs. I've got Black Adder on there, and I'll show Patricia. And she said, that's House? Yep. She couldn't believe it. She said, yeah, I said, he was a comedic actor for many years mm-hmm. in Britain. And Stephen Fry. So she's going off to have dinner with Dietrich, and the assumption is she's going to have to sleep with him. But she goes in after curfew, and it runs afoul of a trio of fingermen, who pretty much yeah. tell her, you're out after curfew, so we get to anally rape you. Not just, because no, 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 remember, because there's that line. Oh, no, they makes, tell her flat out, yeah, well, we're going to rape you. Be, where she, they, there's that one line where they go, it's like, there's a lot of people who are going to be very sore in the morning, you're going to have one sore ass. Well, we have that right. Right. Because we caught you after Spare the wrong. And she's showing them all. Well, I have my ID uh, my, card. My uncle is sick, I don't mean to do it, it was a mistake. I don't give a shit. She has her ID card. She has a pass. Right. She has like three or four different mm-hmm. forms of ID. They don't give a shit. Right. But she's rescued by a gentleman dressed in black with a talent for knives who calls himself V. Who then invites her to watch his symphony from the rooftops. And we learn that this symphony is a production of the 1812 Overture. Mm-hmm. He somehow found a way to cut into the lines that uh, control communication. So... All of a sudden, all the speakers are playing 1812 Overture, and then he blows up the old Bailey. And this begins this odyssey where Evie ends up becoming a criminal because, of course, they see this terrorist on the surveillance tapes, and mm-hmm. he's with this woman. They target the woman. Right. And the person who's in charge of this investigation is a character by the name of Inspector Finch, played by Stephen Rea. Mm-hmm. And Stephen Rea gives a great performance considering that he's given the unenviable task of being the exposition man. He's the person that finds all the backstory and pieces all the backstory together about V while the rest of the story is going on. Mm -hmm. It ends up that Evie has to take refuge with V for a while. She ends up being captured and goes through this horrible experience. We should mention November 5th is, of course, Guy Fawkes Day in England. Mm -hmm. By the time we get to the second November 5th, Evie has become it's the big trick of the film. But which is the whole thing about the film that I got from it. Is he's trying to teach her how, and everybody else. Yes. Be an individual. Mm-hmm. Don't just listen to what the government tells you. Think for yourself. That elevates it. If this film does take wide roads away from the actual graphic novel. But I think that the ending, which involves the revelation that Everybody could be V. Yeah. Is definitely in keeping with the message that Moore and his collaborator in this project, David Lloyd, wanted to give to the masses. Exactly. Which is what I got away from the movie, Mm. is that 
we all are V. We all could be V if we want to be V. Well, yeah. I think one of the key lines of dialogue in the... the we story. don't have to be as extreme as he did, because yeah, he goes out and kills yeah. me. But in our own way, we mm-hmm. can be V. And I said, you know, this is a damn good I mean, movie. one of the things that told middle sequence of the second act, which uh, Natalie Portman, I know that you have this complaint about her being robotic. I don't think she's robotic in this film at all. No, she's not. She's no. not. She's, she's but not. where she she's learns not. about another prisoner... The message there is that yeah. even something as simple as deciding to love the person you want to love mm. can be seen as a revolutionary yeah, act. Yeah, yeah. The movie is so good on that level. You don't have to be the revolution as blowing up a building. Right. But you could do that if you want to. But choosing to love this person, that in its mm-hmm. way is this revolution. It's just about the choices that you make in right. your life and what you want to do. That's revolution. But it's not just conforming to the status quo and listening to what the government yeah. says. That's what I took away from V. And Vendetta. we should yeah. once again go back to Hugo Weaving, who was actually the second actor. There's some footage in this film, which is of the first actor they hired, who then decided, I don't want to do this. I guess it's because Weaving trusted the Wachowskis yeah. from all the yeah. time. The Matrix. But he gives a performance... Without one of his major tools, his face, yeah, as that his face, yeah, he goes through the whole movie wearing that goofy guy fox mask yes. with the grins, and, and he gives a stellar performance. Gives us a with his voice and body language. Mm-hmm. It's a performance that is vital, and it's full of life, and it's full of emotion. If you guys haven't seen V for Vendetta, by all means, put it on your Netflix yeah. queue. It's a brilliant movie. It is. it is. That's all I have to say. It is. People talk about, oh, yeah, well, comic book movies. No, this is not just a comic book movie. It's a you movie. You could take that, it as a comic book movie. But it's a movie with so much subtext. If you sit there and you listen yeah. to what's going on about individualism, fascism, all those other kind of things, government. Uh, to my mind, the key line of dialogue in that entire film is when V tells Evie, people should never be afraid of their government. Government should be afraid of their people. Exactly. V for Vendetta, boom. You and me see eye to eye on that yeah. one. That, no problem mm-hmm. with that one. So now we get to 2009, the year we're living in now, and the film that I know that pretty much everybody who's been listening to this episode so far... Watchmen! ...has been waiting to see... And they're getting ready to go see it. Thank- Watchmen! Thankfully, 20th Century Fox, they just wanted money thrown at them. Watchmen! So, we're going to get to see May 6th, and we're going to go see this together. We're going to see Watchmen. I would just like to say, right now, before we go into all the back stuff about Watchmen, me and Tom, we got a play date. We're going to go see it again. Right. Anybody who's listening to this, if you're in the New York area... If you want to go watch it with us, get in touch with me or Tom. He will tell you right, at the end of this episode. If you want to make it a better in the dark love fest and we all mm-hmm. go see it at the same time, fine. Let us know. Tom will let you know. Okay. Get in touch with us and we'll all go see it and together. this is a legendary graphic novel. This is the, the only graphic novel that made it to the New York Times list of 100 most essential novels in the world. This is the Citizen Kane of graphic yeah. novel. And rightly so. And it was considered for a long time unfilmable. Uh, uh, Terry Gilliam had it for a long Terry time. Terry Gilliam, Steven Spielberg. Just about every major director you can name, they wanted to film Watchmen. They had, and they all said, no. can't do it, it's unfilmable. And they had some weird ideas for casting. At one point, I think it was when Spielberg was considering it, they had considered Warren Zevon to play Rorschach. They, matter of fact, Steven Spielberg, they paid him like $10 million just for pre-production yeah. stuff. And he... 
said, I can't do it. He said, it's on Filmable. And in fact, back in 1990, I was doing freelance work for Video Review Magazine. I got a chance to talk to Sean Connery's assistant because they wanted me to talk to Sean Connery. Oh, yeah, tell that story. Okay. Yeah. This is a good story, folks. Sit back. What Video Review Magazine paid me to do every month was do a little feature they did where they had like a couple of celebrities talk about their five favorite movies in a certain category. So at the beginning of every month, I'd get a list. Here are the celebrities we want you to try to find. And they would give us a contact number. So I'd call that number and try to get to arrange something. Mm-hmm. They were doing action movies that month. So Sean Connery, obviously, was one of these people on the list. So I call up Sean Connery's office and his assistant. And I say, this is Top DJ Video Review Magazine. Blah, 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 blah. He says, just a second, I'm going to see what Mr. Connery's status is. Hold on for a moment. So during that five minutes that he's going to try to find Sean Connery, and I'm going like, oh shit, I may actually be talking to James Bond in a few moments. Eventually picks up the phone and goes, no, I'm sorry, he's out of town for the weekend. He's apparently over in Alan Parker's house in Ireland. Now, I had just heard from my editor at Amazing Heroes that Alan Parker had taken over the Watchmen job. So I took a stab in the dark and I said, are they talking about Watchmen? Mm. I said, yeah, he's up for some part called The Comedian. So we almost got Sean, Sean Connery, Connery as a comedian. comedian. Yeah, well, I can see that. So it's been through everything, and it's one of these books. Oh, yeah, well, it's been through directors for like 20 years. Well, Alan Moore And you've had all these directors that were saying it was right. unfilmable. Well, Alan Moore has always said, and do I have to do the Alan Moore voice? Yeah. Okay, Alan Moore said... Do the Alan Moore voice. Well, you know, I, I did this, this book because... It's very much about comic books. It's not just about the stuff characters. So it would be very difficult to do it as another medium. Yeah? Folks, you want to sit here and watch him do it's remarkable. <laughs> oh, so it's very odd because this was originally Alan Moore's pitch for the Carlton characters. Right. DC Comics had bought the rights to the Charlton characters. As a favor to then Vice President Dick Giordano, who right. was the editor at Carlton when the, these action heroes were created. So what they were going to do, they were figure out a vehicle, well, how right. are we going to use these characters? And then Alan Moore showed up with his pitch for Watchmen, but then Dick Giordano said, no, no I, I don't want, want you yeah. yeah, I don't want you to do this to my character. Yeah, exactly. Dick Giordano wanted to bring them into the DC Universe. Much so, like this year, we're getting the Milestone characters and the Archie characters being introduced right. in the universe. So then what happened was that Alan Moore said, well, then i got to create new characters and, and tell the story said, I want to do. And he actually, Which he did. Yeah, and he's actually said that. Do I have to do it again? Yeah. He's actually said, well, you know, I actually think that the story is stronger because I had to create my own characters. And it is. It is. Watchmen stands on its own as a completely separate right. super It's more realistic. Because well, that's a major thing, is that it is a realistic take on what a superhero universe would be like. And how it would affect stuff like the, the Vietnam yeah. War. We don't have super beings. We have ordinary Guys men. Guys who think it's fun to dress up. Ordinary men and women dressing mm-hmm. up in costumes fighting crime. We don't have there until is ex- the 60s. Yeah. There's exactly one superpower being in this entire story. Dr. Manhattan. Who we don't get until the 60s. Everybody else is just men and women in mm-hmm. just... Because funny costume. It takes place in an alternate universe where there was a fad in the 40s for mystery men that ended very quickly because of a character named Dollar Bill getting his head <laughs> caught on a vault and being murdered. So the original first group of superheroes kind of breaks apart. One of them becomes a Hollywood star, Sally Jupiter. Right. Original name Sally Juice Petsnick, who ends up becoming in cheaper and cheaper movies until she's actually doing softcore porn. 
Well, yeah, she becomes yeah. a porn star, basically. The comedian enters a service with the government and becomes an assassin. For the no, CIA is assassin. He right. starts out as this laughing, joking mm-hmm. Spider-Man slash Daredevil right. kind of acrobat Daredevil. Although but, we learn in a, in a but flash- he becomes darker and darker yeah. until. Although we do learn in a flashback to the forties, he was pretty. Fucked up even back then. Well, there is that thing with the Silk Spectre. Me and Tommy yep. gonna say, first of all, if you haven't read the original graphic novel, shut off this podcast and go out Barnes and Noble buy right now. What ultimately happens is there's the advent of Doctor Manhattan. Guy gets caught into a nuclear accident and becomes this amazingly powerful super being who can pretty much do anything. This ushers in a second heroic age where we have characters such as the second Silk Spectre who's the daughter of Sally Jupiter. But it also ushers in a new wave of technological because he's able to rearrange matter. He creates all this stuff and says, okay, well, I can create this. Boom! And he points a finger and that's it. And then he decides to just go... Like, for example, there's the... The electric car is now plentiful because he's able to find a way to create a battery that's cheap to produce. Right. He gets rid of the Vietnam conflict pretty much by frying Vietnam. There's a scene even in the trailer mm-hmm. where we see him. He's in Vietnam and he's just pointing at Vietnam and saying, Zach, right. <laughs> and he just vaporizes. And him and the comedian mm-hmm. between them two, they were look in the Vietnam War like a year. There's a second heroic age. You've got the second Silk Spectre. You've got a second Night Owl. Right, who takes you've, over from the first one. You've got Captain Metropolis who ends up having to give up his career because it's out he's homosexual. He, he goes out the- Yes. <laughs> you have oh. Ozzy Mandeus who is basically the, the world's smartest, smartest man. man in the world because supposedly you and me only mm-hmm. use 10% of our he brain power but he uses 90%. So he's the smartest man in the world and he knows every martial he can think of any plan before you come up right. with it. And most importantly, we have Mr. Walter Kovacs, who goes by the name of Rorschach. Oh, Rorschach, yeah. Who is not a well man. Who is played by, in a movie, the last person. Yep. Jackie Earl Haley. Who was a child actor. Mm-hmm. But from what I've seen of him in trailers and yep. little clips, he nailed the role. He just got it down. The actual story starts with the murder of the comedian. Right. He, who in this movie will be played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Mm-hmm. Positing that somebody is going after heroes for some reason, Rorschach takes it upon himself to investigate and goes around contacting his former, uh, partners. His former partners in what was, I think, at that point called the Minutemen. What ends up happening is they undercover this massive... Well, I don't know how it's going to work out in the movie, mm-hmm. but there's this massive conspiracy to take the world off the nuclear clock. Because mm-hmm. that's where the Watchmen name comes from, is the idea that relations were so tense at the time in the 80s that the nuclear clock was at five minutes to midnight. Five minutes to midnight, yeah. In the back cover of the original series, you had the graphic of the Well, clock you had the clock started getting, at a quarter to two. Yeah. And with every succeeding issue, it would go up a little bit more. Yeah. And, the and last, there was like a thing of blood coming down slowly And in the last well. issue, it was 12 o'clock. Right. That's why Watchmen was so brilliant, because everything connects together. Yeah, exactly. See that bin right there? Yeah. The Watchmen's right in there. I read it the other day, and I've read Watchmen like I mean, about even, a dozen times. And I still saw things that I hadn't yeah. seen before. Even stuff like, there's a, a series of backup strips in the original graphic novel. Pieces of article. And there's one piece that's an interview with Dr. Manhattan. There's another piece that's from a film and magazine. And, and it's got the thing with the pirate stuff. Right. The oh, Tales of the, the, Black, the Black Freighter, yeah. Right. Which acts as a kind of Greek chorus to the main story. Yeah. Because that's one of the other like really weird touches is that because superheroes have been 
around for a little bit in their world. Life. They don't have superhero they don't have, comics. Yeah, they have they pirate have, comics. They've got pirate comics. Now we've got Zack Snyder, who very successfully did the Dawn of the Dead remake, very successfully did 300, which most people thought was unfilmable, and he's very clear about it. It's like, okay, I've got the power now, I want to do Watchmen. And he's apparently doing Watchmen Right. But you know what I've heard? Even though we won't see it in the theatrical right. version, he filmed it. That's gonna, about, and we're going to see that in the DVD. Yeah, it's it's going to be a separate DVD. Like Whoa, this man. One. This guy's. Yeah. This so, guy's and, and on and the supposedly money. supposedly going to be, he's been very clear about the fact that the DVD release is going to be something like four hours and change yep. long. And there's supposed to be a video game and all this. And all this is supposed to work together in synergy to create the actual whole Watchmen experience. This guy is on the money. Yeah. That's all I got to say. Zack Snyder, if you're listening to this, That's you right. are my man. You will not get your ass kicked. Not <laughs> by us. No. no. Even without even having seen a foot of film. But we have seen. We've seen those you, amazing trailers. And like I said before, if you want to go with me and Tom to see mm-hmm. Watchmen, get in touch with us. And you will go with us see if the day it comes out. Mm-hmm. And Tom right now is going to tell you how to get in touch with us. First thing you can do is you can uh, send us a note to our email, which is at betterinthedark at gmail.com. That's better the letter N, the dark at gmail.com. You can leave us a message. We'll have Eric put together a thread on the message board for people to put in. Okay. I'm in. And also so we can give information. Go to the message board at betterinthedark.proboards105.com. Or you can leave a note on either our present Better in the Dark page, which is at betterinthedark.podomatic.com, or our archives page, which is at bitd.lipson.com. Plenty of ways to get a hold of us and say, yeah, I'm down with the clown. I'm going to get in on this. Down with the clown? Down with the uh, clown. Hey, blame Len Peralta for that one. <laughs> How you doing, Len? Nora? We like Len and Nora from Jawbone Radio. Yes, yes we, we do. do. There are plenty of ways to get a hold of us, and we'll try to keep you up to date on the message board. So that's it. We've got a couple of films if you want to get ready for the Alan Moore experience. Here are three films you can take a look at. The only one I would really recommend, though, wholeheartedly is V for Vendetta. Well, Tom would do that, but I'm going to agree with him on this. If you want to start out with Alan Moore, V for Vendetta, it's a movie that's got a lot to think about if you give it the chance to think about it. Well, it's also like the closest in tone to what you're going to see in Watchmen. Yeah, that's true. It's just a remarkable movie in terms of acting and story. Hugo Weaving, I cannot give that man enough props. He goes through the whole movie without his face, which is what an actor... Yes, which is a major you know, tool. That, yeah, major tool. He wears that goofy guy folks mask all throughout the whole movie, but through his body language and his voice, he creates a memorable character. Right. And Natalie Portman, yes, you've heard me rag going. This one, okay, she's good. So, V for Vendetta. If you're in the mood for something really cheesy, yeah, Return of the Swamp thing might be okay for you. It's a good Saturday afternoon movie, along with League of Extraordinary oh. Gentlemen. Says you. Uh, yes, says I. Both of those movies, if you got nothing better to do on a Saturday afternoon, rent them and just sit back and get some popcorn, potato chips, and soda, and have a good time. Mm-hmm. That's Okay, what, yeah. You know, that's all they're designed for. And keep an eye out for our next review show, because you know we're going to be talking about Watchmen in that one. Right. Along with probably Taken and a couple other things that we'll have seen in the interim months. Right now, we're going to go up. We're going to go watch the Super Bowl game. Thank you for listening okay. to our 
third anniversary show. Yeah. But we meet. still owe them the Brooklyn Actors Spotlight, which we will get to later in the year. We promise. Okay. And I will say that I'm predicting right now that the Cardinals and Kurt Warner are going to do it. And they're going to beat the crap out of Ben Roethlisberger. And we'll see just how ridiculous that prediction is in about a month's time. We will see. But thank you very much for listening to our third anniversary show of Better in the Dark. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We and appreciate so, you. Whatever you do, wherever you may go, wherever you may see. Whatever big guy in a vegetation suit comes by to tell you that you swamped, go, go see, see that, that movie. movie. Good night. Thank you and God bless. Okay, let's get down to it, boppers. I may have been overly rude earlier when I called you a pirate. And I may have been overly charitable when I said I wasn't. Yeah, you've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to John S. Drew of the Chronic Rift, Eric and Kelly of Podcrawlers, Paul French of Poptopia, and the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards105.com. Better in the Dark is still waiting for its widely available electric car, but for that matter, we're still waiting for the personal jetpack. All the episodes of the show are archived at bigd.lipson.com. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, and pipe bombs to betterinthedark at gmail.com. That's better than the letter N, thedark at gmail.com. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation. All material copyright Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that it is possible to lease your soul to the devil with an option to buy. But at least get a high down payment upon signing your gifts. With Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. Added to the blacklist. I never want to hear that music again.